Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today, I'm excited to talk with Ren Stefano about how I will kill you. Welcome, Ren. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love the title of the book. You know, I, I'm a little twisted. So anything that a title comes along that is different, I'm like, oh, that interests me. And as I said, with a lot of people, I think the cover of a book is important. So how did you sort of come upon the title? The title was the working title. And it's so funny because I've, I've written children's books for over a decade and I've never had my working title become the title. So when it was my working title, I thought, well, this is a bit much. They probably won't go for it. But there was just never any talk of changing it. So I said, OK, I guess this is where we're going. <laughs> well, I love it. And I, you know, you sort of get a feeling straight out of the gate that this is not going to be a cozy romance. And that's OK. So it was, though, in some ways, a strange, unique romance novel. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of love and a lot of maybe mistaken love in this. And that's something that really resonated with me. We see three triplets mm-hmm. uh, come into the book and how they bring into their life and what's going on with them. Give us a little backstory on the triplets and where we find them. So it's three identical triplets who are abandoned as babies. They've never found their parents and they grew up in the foster system. And something really unique about their story is that even though they kept in touch, they grew up in three very different lifestyles. So one was put into sort of a nuclear foster family, and that's our narrator. And she looks over at her two sisters, and every time she's reunited with them, she sees how much they've changed and how hard life has been for them. And so she develops this habit of sort of sabotaging her own happiness. Mm -hmm. And she thinks, okay, even if we can't be together, at least we can be united in our misery, sort of. (laughs) And so here they are now, 25 years old, young adults for all intents and purposes. And they're branching out into finding love, finding a life for themselves. And they learn super early on after a life of disappointment, a life of hardship and, and lack of control, that it, dating is not going to be much different. And so they, they <laughs> develop this very unique, unique way of processing that and deciding we are going to meet somebody that we love. We're going to fall in love with them, have a perfect whirlwind romance. And then before they can break our hearts, we're going to kill them. <clears throat> It's uh, in real life. Sometimes we get put in those positions where it's like, well, you know, maybe that's a good fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I, so one of the things about the sisters and I have known quite a few twins uh, and a few triplets, but mostly a lot of twins in my life. And there is a um, there is this thing this it's like an invisible wave that goes between them. They really do often know what each other's thinking, Mm -hmm. where they are at a certain time. I thought you did a really great job in bringing that out. We see the sisters, as you say, they grew up differently, but there's so much about each other that they understand. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine what it would be like to be separated from a sibling, but especially if you're a triplet that, you know, you're put into situations that are very different and, you make that interesting. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. 
you also brought them to a place of a small town, which I was a little surprised about that because I would have probably thought it might be set in a large town. So was there a big impetus for choosing a small town versus a large town? Yeah. So what I was thinking about is this is set in the modern day. And previously, I'd mostly written fantasy. So I, I was like, okay, this is going to be one of my first contemporary books. And I thought, okay, we live in the age of technology, security cameras, GPS. How do I navigate that when you have not one but three serial killers working together? And I thought, well, there are still towns throughout the world where it's still a bit you know, cut off. Nothing ever happens. Mm-hmm. People don't mm-hmm. lock their doors. You and they, so they scout out places wherever they'd like to go. They pick a state, a climate, whatever they'd like, and they think, okay, let's find a small town where we're not likely to get caught. We'll check out the gas stations. Are there security cameras? Will we be spotted? And that all factored in. And I settled on the desert. And the desert was a lot of fun for me as a New Englander who has all the four seasons and a very cold winter when I was writing the first chap. And it, but it was so, it's so clean and so pretty. You go out there and you've got the dirt and you've got this clear cloudless sky. And I just really fell in love with that being a setting for them. I like it. I, and it was one, it becomes uh, another character. And I think that's something, the desert is, the desert can be loving and kind and it can be hard as hell. And I think that's the thing that I see when I'm reading your book in this particular setting is that you spent time there. You understand how it functions and it becomes, like I said, another character in the book, which is fun for the reader, I think. Yeah, it almost it almost helps her. She she thinks of the sky as watching her at times. She mentions, I'm just here for a little while. I'm just going to do my thing and leave. And she when you learn, I think wherever you live, if you learn to use the environment around you to your advantage, it feels like a friend. I agree. There's a little one of those little sayings that comes on little posters, you know, bloom where you're planted. And Mm -hmm. it really is true because you get a chance as a human to make that happen. Yeah. Where possible. Because, you know, I think that's one of the things that make your characters, the three sisters, sympathetic is we see that they did not have a perfect life. And we see that in a lot of ways, they're really trying to find a bit of utopia, even mm-hmm. though they think it's momentarily. Yeah, and, they see each other as home for sure. Yeah, and, and they have hope in that. And I think that's a good thing. Tell us about the neighbor, Dara. Mm -hmm. Dara. Oh my gosh. Dara broke my heart. I loved her. And I, I think she was just a culmination of so many people I've known in life too. And you, everyone in this story ends up meaning more to our, our main character than she intends because everything's a prop. She sees her two sisters as they're the only real thing Mm -hmm. and everyone else I have to learn to manipulate to get what I want. And so when she meets her neighbor, Dara, She's this sort of free-spirited, just kind of chain-smoking, doesn't hold back, you know, speaks her mind next to our neighbor. And our narrator is thinking, well, I like her. But her role is still that when when I've committed this murder and I'm weeping and I'm crying, I'll have a character witness, right? Mm-hmm. But she discovers she really cares for this person. And she comes into a position where she would like to help her. And she is caught she's caught because the act she's playing is not meant to be real and so the friends of this character she's adopted are not meant to be real and so she's very confused about why she's having so many feelings 
and I think that's that was another thing that resonated with me. Dora is Dora is so real in a lot of ways, and of course, Sissy puts a bit of her own life onto Dara and assumes things about Dara that she would operate the same way as Sissy and her sisters do. And that's not always the case because, you know, each human is different. The siblings have a connection and a bond that is really, really different than anyone else in the mm -hmm. story. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes as humans, we f fool ourselves into believing that everyone else is just like us when no, none of us are alike. We all have our own differences. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of projection for sure. <laughs> sometimes yeah. her projection gets very specific. She's she's faced with some situations. She knows she's not going to get the happy ending she wants. And so she's like, you can have this happy ending. I'm going to help you do these things. <laughs> and, and in that way, Sissy becomes quite a bit of a protector for not only her sisters, which we see as the book progresses, but also of her neighbor, Dara, which is, mm -hmm. which is a really nice thing because it gives Sissy something that as a reader is unique and it gives us a reason to be able to root for Sissy, which is mm -hmm. something that's really nice. I will say that I thought Edison must be handsome as hell because mm -hmm. you certainly gave us a very handsome character. Who is Edison? Edison is Sissy's intended mark. And it's when she meets him for the first time, she's sitting in a diner trying to scope out her target. She's got her sister on a Bluetooth who's watching from the car. They're looking for clues. This person seems like he might be attached to somebody. This person seems messy. And then Edison walks in and the sun shines and the angels sing, right? And she immediately, love at first sight, sees him as this beautiful person. And she's painting these scenarios. I bet he stoops to pet dogs when somebody's walking by on the sidewalk. I bet he rocks out to music in the car. I, you know, I bet somebody's broken his heart and she immediately is planning a life with him. And once she starts to spend time with him, and I think this is something Edison has in common with Dara, is that they both are beautiful, sort of effervescent mm -hmm. people who are interesting. But when Sissy spends time with them, she learns that they're very vulnerable that they're not what they outwardly seem, that they do need help like everybody else does. And she falls into that protector category. So here she is, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to use you as my character witness, but she's falling in love with these people nonetheless. I will say, and I'm not going to talk about what comes up, but chapter 16 and chapter 17, mm -hmm. certainly, um, I did not see it coming. And that is something I will pat you on the back about mm -hmm. because oftentimes when you read a book and you, you sort of see the way it's going, but chapter 16, really, I was like, oh, I did not see that. And then of course, chapter 17, I love chapter 17 because it gave, as we we're talking, it gave Sissy uh, an ability to change some of her narration. And so that was a good thing. Mm -hmm. Did, um, how did the surprises come about for you? Was it, did you know it in advance or did it sort of come as you were writing it organically? How did that work? So I didn't necessarily know in advance, but my agent, shout out to Barbara, wonderful, amazing, genius person. Um, she talks about something called contract with the reader and contract with the reader is okay. You have a character, let's say, like Sissy, who's doing bad things or planning bad things. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just give them an easy go. You can't give them just a happy time. And so this was kind of a moment of chaos where a lot of the 
the plan she laid and a lot of the just kind of sweet little notions of how this would go blew up in her face. And you see it, you see, I think, the edge within her as a human because she plays this act really well. She plays the part of, I am just going to be everything that everyone needs me to be because it's all an act. It doesn't matter. And so for Edison, I'm going to be the perfect girl. And for Dara, I'm going to be your best friend. But it all just collides and not in a way she's anticipating. And, and we see that really dark edge and we see what she's capable of in, in these chapters. You know, and speaking of dark edge, I really felt like Sissy was on the edge quite a bit. Um maybe metaphorically and physically mm -hmm. all at the same time, you know, it's, you see, since Sissy is the narrator, she tells us what she needs us to know, right? Cause mm -hmm. that's what a narrator does in a book. So Sissy comes at us with a lot of honesty, which mm -hmm. is, which is really important for me as a reader, because I don't like to be fooled because if you fool me, then you as an author and I, as a reader, we don't have a contract because you mm. took that up. So that is something that I thought Sissy did. And what we see with Sissy is when things don't go the way she anticipates them, she's quick on her feet, but I find that she's on the edge a lot, which gives the book uh, a deliciousness as a reader. And mm. so I'm assuming that was a conscious role it was, on your part it was yeah so i i love thrillers and i read a lot and so something i see a lot of is the unreliable narrator which is a lot of fun it can be done very very well and really twist you mm -hmm. but in this case it ended up i i thought about that i thought well she's a serial killer so really she's already told you <laughs> she's told you yeah. it's not a surprise. <laughs> and so it's kind of the opposite she's just very confessional and I think it comes from her foster care childhood and not having that control and not really feeling seen. And I just need somebody to tell all of my thoughts to unabashedly. And she doesn't speak any of them out loud. She's really got everybody fooled. She's got a whole town that loves her and sees what she's putting out, you know, consciously. Everything's very calculated. But with the reader, it's very, very detailed. Here I am holding hands with my man at the park. We're having a great day. I can't wait to slice his throat, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very, very honest. Which is which is very refreshing, too, because, you know, that way, when we see some of the growth and development in mm -hmm. Sissy and the story itself, we're able to relate to it because she's shared with us, oh, this didn't quite go the way I thought it was, mm -hmm. but here I am doing this. And mm -hmm. so that was really, really interesting to me. So I just, um, I did not get any uh, hints on how to kill the next person, but you know. <laughs> Not an instruction <laughs> manual, don't. Right, precisely, which I think is something maybe to point out because the title is uh, salacious and fun, but yet it is, it's something that anyone can read because it's not, it's not really teaching you how to off somebody. It's mm. talking. It's talking about much more about emotions and what happens in someone's mind and what they feel. Yeah, I think if anybody went into this book thinking, "Oh, I want to know how to kill somebody," by the time they got to the end, they might say, "Never mind. This is more trouble than it's worth. This did not go as expected at all." So I won't give it away, but it's no. not very encouraging. <laughs> but I think I think uh, once again, though. Sissy is a people pleaser, which mm -hmm. if you're a people pleaser, that's that's a very hard role to play. And mm -hmm. it is, as you say, she spends the entire book trying to help others um, and unbewittingly is 
hopefully helping herself, mm-hmm. you know, which is a which is a really interesting thing. So um, I noticed also that I like the fact that they use obviously they use different names, so they're hiding mm-hmm. out and they use names that I feel like they sort of identify with where they are in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that they use that to protect themselves. And I find that in this world, we have a lot of people who are identifying themselves as certain ways. And I sort of felt like your characters were doing a little of that as well. So mm-hmm. um, what's a good takeaway from this? What so, would- yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's so interesting to see how people receive what you write and and what they take out of it. It's always just really interesting. And I think for these characters, they have a legal name that is so insignificant to them that you really only learn it later in kind of passing. And they've reinvented themselves with names that they have only for each other. And so you get the sense, even though they refer to each other by Sissy as the main character, her sisters are Moody and Iris, and they have stories for how they've adopted these names you know that when they interact with people from their past, they just mention, oh, they're using my old name, the name I don't really associate myself with anymore. And then they also have these fake throwaway names. And the the fake name that Sissy uses when she's playing this act with Edison and with Dara is Jade. And she actually does not associate herself with Jade. So she refers to herself as, okay, this is Jade's family. This is Jade's problem. This is Jade's life, her history. I'm sissy and still not having a connection to that legal name. And I think it's all, it's really about like kind of owning, just owning yourself. Yes. Yes. I love that. I love that. I so enjoyed this book, Ren. This was really delicious. You've done such a great job. Do you have a website or social media that you would like to share? You can find me on Instagram. It's Lauren DeStefano author. Lovely, lovely. Come back anytime. I would love to chat again. I'd love to be here. Thank you. Lovely. Thanks. Hang on for me just a minute. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out with Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, and on Instagram and Facebook at gooutwithdan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out with Dan.